Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark as usual, vetgurus.com, go there, click on the, the link to our Patreon site where you can throw us a bone as we like to say and give us, donate, donate a the equivalent of a coffee is what we usually chat about. Um, so three, five dollars equivalent, um, and that will help enormously in order to offset our costs, all our costs for hosting this podcast. So yeah, do it. Go there. Do it. Do it. Do it. Um, that's my plug, Mark, for this week. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, mate. How are you? I am excellent, and I'll tell you what, the feedback from part one was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. Astounding. Chicken's very popular, Mark, just not, not just with our clients but with veterinarians as well. So I'm glad we have part two this week, and because it is a popular topic, I think we're just going to jump into it. We are not going – I'm going to do something radical here, Mark. No news stories, and we are going to go straight into part two. The research team will be devastated that we're not using the considerable resources of the whole team to uh, do some news, but I do think continuity dictates that we leap straight in, Brennan. Absolutely, yes, and, um, well – they need they need to be knocked down a notch or two anyway, our research team. So there you go. Okay, so part two. So in part one, Mark, um, for those listeners who are new to our podcast, I encourage you to go back to last week's podcast and pick up part two before you listen to this one, Mark. And we covered in part one chicken care, so chooks as we call them here in Australia. We covered the housing aspects, basic diet and this week we're going to jump in head first, Mark, and we're going to. I think the best way to approach part two is to talk about some of the common diseases that backyard chickens are brought to vet clinics for, Mark. So I'll throw over to you, and you can kick it off. Well, um, I think it is good for people to be aware when they are keeping chickens, particularly the sort of the backyard chickens. You know, I've had some experience going into breeder flocks for poultry companies and those isolated flocks are, uh, you know, kept biosecure and they don't have a big problem. But our, our backyard chooks do get access to a whole bunch of opportunities to get diseases. And I think it's great to be aware of them before you even take the birds on that you have a bit of an idea of what might go wrong with them. So the first thing I talk to people about when I'm talking about chicken diseases are external parasites. There are a number of um, external parasites that backyard poultry will come down with. And because they're on the outside, they're often amongst the first things that people will notice if there is a problem. And so they can get um, specific parasites like uh, nemodocoptes, the scaly leg mite, um, and uh, you know various uh, environmental parasites uh, like ticks, 
um, uh, stick fast fleas uh, can attach to the external um, featherless areas um, and feather lice uh, often something that people come to us and uh, and are very worried about those external parasites generally in most instances cause relatively mild clinical signs maybe a little bit of um, feather worry um, in large numbers of course they can lead to anemia they vary in their amount of irritation they cause um, and uh, and of course they can transfer they can be the agents the the vectors for other diseases um, but I think the key thing to emphasize here is that external parasites in our chickens are just like external parasites in many other species they're often present in large numbers when the birds are run down and their normal ability to groom and uh, maintain uh, host defenses are compromised so do you think with these, Mark, how, why do the clients bring their chicken in with the external parasites? Do you think it's because they're just, you know, herding their, um, herding their chooks around or they're looking at picking up their chooks and then they see the parasites on them or, and then they freak out? Or do they see clinical signs in the chicken? Which is a more common reason that they'd be bringing them in? I think it's mainly the first one. I think they will pick the birds up maybe to, um, you know, put them away or uh, when they're really tame just to give them a cuddle and um, and then they'll notice uh, particularly the, the, um, the lice that uh, the birds might carry. That's probably the most common one we see and uh, they'll get on to their arm. You can feel them crawling around and it definitely freaks people out and they, they then bring them in to, to have them assessed and to try and put something in place to uh, limit the chance those parasites are going to cause any problems. And of course, it's, you know, not uh, there's a number of commercial products uh, that uh, uh, sprays of a number of different brands um, that um, can be used very effectively on the birds to, uh, to limit those um, parasites and often the best time to do that is rather than running around the yard with a spray bottle or uh, a top spot uh, treatment um, trying to catch the birds as they shoot between garden shrub to garden shrub um, it's best to wait till they're asleep at night uh, perched on their um, secure house in the chook shed um, and uh, and and apply those uh, parasiticides at that time in the evening Great tip, Mark. And I know there are, well, innumerable products, aren't there? There's there's still, I think in most countries, there's a powdered form of the ectoparasiticides that people can use, a little dust sort of products, a bit like um, sprinkling some um, cheese over a, <laughs> over a meal um, in when those little shakers there, Mark. Um, do, do you ever recommend those types of – and I presume most of those are what, like, are they pyrethrin, permethrin-type products or not? I think most of the the um, the powders that you describe so eloquently, um, most of those ones are, um, you know, organophosphate-based ah, yes, ones. And so yes. we tend to steer clear of those in the first instance. There are times when we resort to them, um, but generally speaking, we're looking for the, you know, pyrethrum, pyrethroid-based sprays, um, and uh, and they tend to be well-tolerated by the birds and tend to be very effective. So, um, so that's probably our starting point. 
and those ones I suppose especially if they have a few chickens in the backyard it's probably more cost effective than using the spot-on treatments although they can be very effective as well if you have a large number then that can the cost can be considerable the difference between the two can't they exactly and and you're precisely at the nail on the head as usual that um that uh, those sprays very effective and cost effective at the same time mean that they're probably our first line choice for external parasites now, speaking of parasites, what about the ones not on the outside mark? And they, the, the internal parasites do are a very, very common finding for us. And often people bring us chickens that are poor doers, that are run down. They might have um, pallid combs or wattles. The, um, the colour of those red structures about the head uh are influenced by circulating blood and so when uh, chickens are anemic um, those combs will become sort of pale and floppy. Um, uh, Many of the internal parasites are gastrointestinal and so lead to diarrhea and the birds get stained around their vent and loose stool gets matted up in their in their um, the feathers around their butt Um, and so that would be a common reason for us to do an examination um, of the stool, um, and uh, and we would regularly find there's a large number of uh, helminth and protozoan parasites that um, that chickens can suffer from. Um, some of them are very difficult to treat um, and require not only uh, medication but um, management practices to lessen the likelihood they're going to be a problem. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about uh, internal parasites in chickens, as compared to um, as compared to uh, maybe our dogs, is that, um, you know, it's pretty, it's not an unreasonable thing to think that with our companion animals, we can have uh, a so-called all-wormer, something that is very likely to, if not certain, to remove all the parasites, the internal parasites that our uh, companion animals might have. It's almost impossible for us to guarantee without doing an assay of the parasites that the birds are suffering from, that any particular treatment will remove them. Um, And so we need to have a faecal analysis to see whether we have protozoal parasites, coccidia and giardia or whatnot, um, or whether we have helminths um, and what type of uh, gastrointestinal worms. um, And we need to tailor our treatments, both um, medication and husbandry, to each of those specific uh, parasites. So um, testing and treating specifically is the order of the day. So let me just dig into that a little bit more, Mark. What what your specific recommendations to clients as far as faecal checks with their backyard chickens? And the following, so how often would you recommend that they bring a poo sample in for it to be checked? And, and, and why would you recommend perhaps getting a poo sample more frequently in certain times of the year, for instance? And how often, <laughs> if at all, would you recommend strategic intestinal worming uh, for these birds? Um, So, excellent, excellent questions, (laughs) as usual. Um, We would, for 
people who are starting out, we would normally recommend that um, that once every six months we get a sample of the bird's uh, stools, uh, and that can be a collated, a, a, um, you know, it doesn't have to be individualised. We're treating, in this circumstance, we're going to be treating the flock, um, and so a, a, a a combined sample is good, um, and once every six months we'd like to get that and uh, and make a bit of an assessment about what the birds are carrying. We probably uh, would routinely um, recommend that they uh, get treatment for helminths uh, once every twelve weeks at the turn of the season. And similarly, we one of the internal parasites that gives chickens a lot of problems, particularly when they're young, are um, coccidia, and so we would be routinely uh, recommending treatment for coccidia um, at the same time, shortly after they do the treatment for um, for gastrointestinal worms. We also recommend that any time that we've had um, three or three days of wet weather, that wet weather will wet the soil in the uh, chook run and the number of surviving um, coccidia oocysts and helminth eggs spikes dramatically um, and the increased number means that additional treatment uh, would be required after those three days of wet weather, Brendan. So did, well. I, so did I make that? Uh, at the turn, uh, at the turn of each season, and any time there's three consecutive days of wet weather. Yes, excellent, <laughs> excellent. So, internal, external parasites. What's other common conditions that we see, or diseases that you see in our our chickens? Well, one that I really want to draw people's attention to is uh, Marek's disease. Marek's disease is a uh, a viral disease that uh, affects the birds. They can be vaccinated for it. Um, the vaccine um, is not absolutely. What are they? The, uh, do they call it? I think there's a technical word: sterile immunity, uh, where the the vaccine. Uh, offers some protection, but it's not absolute. And the birds need to get it at a very particular stage in life. And so when people are acquiring birds, they should ask the breeder whether they have been vaccinated for Marek's disease um, as, as it, it's heartbreaking. It's one of the things um, that, uh, that really causes a lot of heartache for people who have acquired birds because um, the virus... Um, does damage to uh, the the um, birds' uh, leukocytes and results in a whole bunch of neoplastic growths. Uh, often, leading uh, they have a bit of an affinity for the nervous structures, and so um, the very common presentation would be some form of uh, paresis or paralysis. Um, and obviously, the main uh, you know, the long nerves that go to the legs are very frequently affected, but um, the tumours occur randomly anywhere close to nerves and they, they can be paralysed in any number of ways. They are untreatable and they are slowly progressive um, and, um, and they're heartbreaking because the birds often start to show signs as, you know, um, they're infected when they're young, but um, they might not show signs until they're uh, 14, 16, 18 weeks of age. Um, and people in love with them by then. Um, and, um, and it's heartbreaking to have a slowly progressive 
paralysis cause the bird's demise, um, and uh, and it's often. You know, we have some clients who hang on to these birds, literally carrying them around so that they can still enjoy life for an extended period of time before um, we have to make decisions about their quality of life. So Marek's disease is important. Check out yes. that they've been vaccinated um, and just be aware. Another thing about Marek's disease is that um, uh, that um, it's one of the reasons that we want to have this all-in, all-out approach. Many people will get a backyard flock and and have two or three birds, and they're so much fun that they think, oh, I'll get a few more. Um, the varying levels of immunity between birds that are introduced to the flock at different times almost ensures that they're going to get some disease, um, and uh, Marix is one of the common ones that occurs in that sort of circumstance. So I really strongly recommend that people make a bit of a plan. I can uh, I can manage five birds. I'm going to get five birds and that's it until those five birds are gone and then I'll get another flock. The all-in, all-out thing makes a big difference to the trouble associated with uh, diseases like Marek's disease. Yes, and speaking of lots of birds, Mark, what about reproductive problems? Oh, reproductive problems are very, 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 very common um, in our backyard chickens. It's not a big surprise when you think about it, the whole association that we've developed with the uh, jungle fowl, developing it into our backyard chook is based on... Um, uh, you know, accentuating their reproductive capacity so that they uh, produce lots of extra eggs for us to eat. Um, and that extra effort that the reproductive tract puts in for production purposes um, causes problems and eventually they get into strife. So we see a whole slew of uh, of problems associated with the reproductive tract. By far and away, the most common um, is egg yolk coelomitis, sometimes called egg yolk peritonitis or yolk peritonitis, where the follicle um, the, from the ovary, which represents the yolk and which has to move a short distance across the abdomen uh, to enter the infundibulum, uh, the opening of the oviduct close to the ovary, that short traverse across the um, uh, free abdominal space stuffs up somehow and the follicle, the yolk, ends up free in the abdomen and after a short period of time, normal movement will cause it to rupture, releasing yolk contents into the salomic space, which causes, of course, a huge inflammatory reaction. And once that inflammation occurs, the next yolk, uh, leaving the the um, ovary 24 hours, around about 26, 24 to 26 hours later, it misses the infundibulum as well and adds to the soup of inflammatory cells and, uh, and disrupted yolk that's seething around in the abdomen. So these birds end up really, really in a lot of trouble. Um, Sick. <laughs> they are sick. They're really sick. Um, and we did cover we did cover this actual subject in a little bit more detail in a previous episode, Mark. But um, so what I want you to cut to the chase with this one and, and talk about the two potential treatments, if you want to call them that, of this condition. And I presume one of them is surgical, and the other one is trying medical. <laughs> so you want to briefly talk about. I do. 
how effective those two are and, um, well, there's a bit of a cost difference, isn't there, in the two potential treatments? Um, Certainly is. Um, And we regularly use uh, um, pain relief anti-inflammatory drugs and hormones to stop the progress of the problem, um, shut the reproductive tract down and give the birds a chance to heal. But obviously that huge inflammatory reaction means that we are faced with the possibility that down the track the same thing might happen again. Our experience is that medical treatment is often very effective in the first instance, um, but it does obviously depend on the precise nature of the reason that the, the follicle hasn't entered the infundibulum. Um, but um, it, it buys us some time um, and it's it's not cheap, but it's, um, it's a reasonable cost for an extra year or two of uh, quality life. To cure the case um, of egg yolk coelomitis, we would have to... Um, Get in there and uh, and do a surgical procedure, flushing the rotten contents out of the abdomen, and um, and removing the oviduct altogether, desexing the birds so that they can't reproduce in the future. We still have to use hormones to prevent. You know, once we take the damaged reproductive tract out, we have got to um, stop the the uh, follicles being produced because they got nowhere to go. Um, but that surgery is very effective at um, ending the problem and making the birds feel much better and behave more normally. But they're obviously not going to produce any more eggs, Brendan. An easy surgery, Mark? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> And it does depend a little bit on the stage at which you get it. In the early stages, the contents of the uh, coelom are like, you know, uh, slightly um, poorly formed yolk just smeared around the inside. So you've got to flush that stuff out, aspirate and flush. And you've got to be careful when you flush that you don't contaminate the air sacs and drown the poor bird. But um, that's not too bad. But after a period of time, the yolk's like congeal in the way of bird pus into um, uh, into cheesy, horrible, moulded um, masses of material, and and it uh, it can be a horrible process, a horribly difficult process to tease all those bits of um, egg yolk pus out of the uh, um, various uh, part contusions, cavities of the uh, bird coelom. And I think that is one where you have to have a fairly heavy conversation with the client, don't you, about those suspect, more severe, um, prolonged cases there about whether or not you do take them to surgery or not. And we'll chat a little bit about end-of-life issues um, shortly, won't we? Um, Any other conditions that you commonly see in backyard chickens. There is two other quick ones that I'll mention. The first one is another viral infection of uh, of birds in general um, is uh, uh, pox virus. Um, so fowl pox is the one that affects chickens. Um, each of our, uh, our bird species has their own little pox virus. Um, and so uh, the magpie pox, for example, doesn't affect chickens. Chickens just get their own one. Um, the disease is spread by biting insects and occasionally by the birds like scratching each other. Um, and so uh, putting the birds away and Protecting them from mosquitoes and midges does a great job of lessening the likelihood they'll get this. Um, there is a vaccine, and often if they've been vaccinated for Marix, they'll be vaccinated for fowl pox as well. But it's not a lifelong 
protection um, in my experience the the uh, an actual infection uh, if the birds recover from an in, uh, an actual uh, infection that immunity is uh, enduring but uh, the vaccine generally only gives um, two or three years of protection um, so checking that they're vaccinated they they do recover so not all birds, but many birds will recover with appropriate supportive care. Um, so it's a good thing to consider um, treating those birds. The other thing that um, is really, really common is um, is I, th I don't sort of think of it as a individual etiological agent, um, but respiratory disease in poultry um, is really a very common presenting sign. And, and it has a wide range of um, potential causes. Um, there are a number of uh, respiratory viruses. Um, a, num a couple of those are exotic and notifiable. So we always have to be careful when we um, do see uh, birds that have unrelenting and non-responsive respiratory disease they get um uh, they're susceptible to chlamydia like many of our other birds um there's parasites that will cause problems to their respiratory tract even um sometimes those egg yolk coelomitis cases can present as respiratory birds but there is a um a bacteria um a frustrating bacteria um that we get to see uh, pretty commonly um it's a it has a worldwide distribution and uh uh and it has one frustrating characteristic that's the one that's known as ornithobacterium rhinotracheale um, and that bacterium is a very very common uh cause of potentially fatal respiratory disease in birds the problem with that bug is that unlike many of the other bacteria that we get to see in many of our different species you know, uh, if we've got a dog with a skin condition, we can be reasonably confident about uh, staffs being one of the real problems and we can be confident about their likely uh, bacterial uh, antibiotic sensitivity. Um, this bug just is not like that at all. The bug occurs worldwide and it has pockets of um, different susceptibility and uh, high incidence of resistance to many of the common bacteria, uh, uh, common antibiotics. So it's a real uh, problem for us to treat and um, it's a common reason that we're suggesting to people, particularly if there's a few birds and they haven't settled down with uh, simple treatments, um, that we get a culture and sensitivity done so we can be treating those cases specifically. Well, I think by the sound of it, Mark, we haven't even scratched the surface <laughs> of diseases, common diseases of the backyard chicken or chook, Mark, but um, we probably will run out of time. And I think we need to revisit this topic in another podcast. But before we finish, I think you wanted to chat a little bit about end-of-life issues, Mark, so which includes euthanasia options and euthanasia techniques for these for this species. I did I did want to talk about this because it, it has some very special characteristics that um that I would like well I think it's important to be aware of. Um we are at the Vet Gurus are very powerful advocates for um for the um, multi-stage um, uh, 
process of euthanasia that we want the bird, the, the animal to maybe be sedated, be anaesthetised um, and then have the delivery of the uh, overdose of barbiturate anaesthetic as the final um, agency in the euthanasia process. One of the things I find about um, poultry, uh, Brendan, is that they are very, very likely, particularly if you only give them a dose of the barbiturate anaesthetic intravenously, um, they are very likely to make a huge fluttering, screeching, um, um, well, it's a performance that is distressing. It's distressing for us vets, but it's particularly distressing for the clients. And as the process of, um, you know, them becoming uh, very clients becoming very emotionally attached to their birds. It's a real moment of truth that if they want to stay there and witness the euthanasia, they've made a, a critical decision to uh, about the quality of life of the bird. Um, if the birds then look like they've suffered in that process, it can be really distressing for the people. So I think uh, I would emphasise that um, that that. I would talk to the people about that because sometimes you can't prevent it no matter what you do. Um, I do find that if we go through all the stages, if we um, sedate the bird first and then anaesthetize them with isoflurane, gain intravenous access and deliver the barbiturate, then the birds are far less likely to do the huge wing flapping and, and uh, screeching that distresses people. Um, so I, I think um, that multi-stage uh, euthanasia um, and a very in-depth discussion with the clients about what's likely to happen is really like it's one of the critical things with uh, chick backyard chicken medicine. Most definitely. And you mentioned lethabarb or the euthanasia solution, and I think it's very important with these backyard chickens that you do really stress to the client that they then cannot take their chicken home to cook it, Mark, and have it for dinner um, because you may not be surprised that that does occasionally occur. And I've got a slightly related story to finish on, Mark, <laughs> which I think you will enjoy. And this is a true story, but the name of the veterinarian involved will be kept secret um, unless you get me very drunk one night um, or day. And that was a vet who I know very well um, who was treating well, he was working in a mixed practice and he went out to treat horses at a hunt club and it was one of these traditional hunt clubs where they would have the dogs there and they would do the release a, a, a fox or, or go and try and find a, a wild fox here in Australia um, to hunt. So they would all dress up in their coat and tails and they would go on the hunt, Mark. Um, and he was there to treat the horses um, and he would... Um, see the horses for various problems and one one of the visits he was treating a horse that was not responding and he ended up having to euthanize that horse um, so we sedated the horse first as we recommend at thevetgurus.com sedation and or anesthesia before euthanasia and um, the euthanasia fortunately went very well and he injected the intravenous lethobarbitone or the um, pentobarbitone and um the hunt master, Mark, as I think they call themselves, the head hunt person, um, 
as Mark, oops, that's his name, Mark, it wasn't you, Mark, it was another Mark, <laughs> was leaving, um, he said to Mark, um, do you, well, let's just call him Mark anyway. <laughs> it's, a good generic, it's a good generic name. That's right. He said to him, um, um, well, is it okay um, for me to take this horse and that's been euthanized and um, we usually um, chop up the horses and um, that die from natural cause, causes and we feed, um, we freeze the meat, um, some of the sections of the limbs, etc., and we um, feed them to the dogs. This is a true story, Mark. Um, I don't think it happens anymore at this hunt club, and you'll soon realise why. And Mark thought about it um, as he was leaving, and he was in a bit of a rush, and he sort of said, oh, yeah, no, it'll be fine. He thought, oh, yeah, I've only given them X, X mils of lethabarb to this horse to um, euthanise it. And by the time, you know, it's distributed throughout the, the horse, it may not um, get into the muscle meat. And he said, well, as long as you don't feed the, you know, get out the um, all the viscera um, and you're just using a little bit of the muscle meat, um, that's fine. Um, so he didn't think anything of it until... Um, I think it was many months later they actually froze um, portions of the horse meat um, and then one day they thawed it out and they, they fed it out to um, several of the dogs that were part of the pack there and um, he got a quite distressed call from the hunt club saying, um, we've got lots of dogs that are asleep, um, what's happening here? Um, and I think, it, it, unfortunately, I think a few of them actually died from secondary, you know, um, um, in, um, poisoning from the um, pentobarbitone. So the moral of the story is, yeah, never recommend to your clients that you um, – take home your chicken or your horse that's been euthanized um, to cook it up, Mark. So it's probably a good reason why we should consider becoming vegetarian, Mark, or another reason. And with that, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.